Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, Esports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many esports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they're eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every esports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, Esports 101. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, where we talk about how esports can create jobs anywhere in the world. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Now, in season one, we talked about jobs. In season two, we called it Follow the Money. We talked a lot about it, sponsorship. We talked about investment. And now in season three, we're talking more about how to actually build a business, how to do things to make an esports business. Now, today, we're really lucky. We're speaking with Fernando Vieira. He's the president at Grow Up, CEO at Extend3, and founder at Girl Gamer Festival. We're going to be talking about all of that. Welcome, Fernando. Thank you so much for having me, actually. So where are you speaking to us from? I'm in Toronto right now in Canada. It's my first time in the country, but it's great because we can get our schedules much more better matched than have this conversation today. So where are you based? I'm based in Dubai right now in the United Arab Emirates. But previous to that, I was actually living between Macau and Portugal. Wow. All over the place. What brought you to Canada? Well, I just finished speaking on the conference and attending it, the Esports Travel Summit. And I'm speaking in another one coming up next week, the Pocket Gamers Connect. And these are both interesting industry conferences. The first one, the Esports Travel Summit, is about destinations all across North America that are looking to have esports in their regions. So I get to meet with sports commissions, with city councils, with venue owners, with hotel chains. And they all have their own incentive programs for bringing more esports events to their region. Great. What got you started in gaming and esports? I guess I was always kind of a gamer since very early. You know, I got my first computer in 1990. I learned how to use MS-DOS console to format computers, to install Drive A and Drive B games and all these things. So in general, I've always been kind of a gamer growing up with consoles, with Sega, you know, arcades and all these things. So I guess one thing just led to the other. I never would have thought that it would be a career path or a profession. I mean, all of us gamers usually hear our parents saying that we're wasting our lives or wasting our times and we're not learning anything. But actually, that's not true, right? We know that there are transferable skills. We know that now the gaming industry is more than the music and cinema combined. It's incredible to see what's happening nowadays. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Macau mostly, but truly between Portugal and Macau. We always talk about geography here. Could you tell us a little bit about Macau? Of course. So Macau is the Asian Las Vegas, the city with the most casino revenue in the whole world, seven times bigger than Las Vegas in revenue. However, it's a really small place. When I was living there, it was only 16 square kilometers, really, really small. It's an hour away from Hong Kong by ferry. It doesn't really have an international airport, so per se. So you kind of always have to fly to Hong Kong and then take a ferry to go there. It was a Portuguese colony up until 1999. So I mixed Portuguese-Chinese. When I was born there, it was still a Portuguese colony. Now it is not. The Portuguese language is still an official language, but not that many people speak it anymore because Chinese is just predominant. But other than that, it's kind of just a very chill little corner of the world. I've never really talked to anyone from a cow port, so that's great. That's great. One of the things I noticed in your background is you do so many different things. You are doing so many different <laughs> things. And one of the things I want to ask you is, how do you select the things to work on? That is a great question, and it's also a hard one. I think that what made me try to do many different things is because I get bored quickly. So I've run a design agency and I never studied design in my whole life. I studied electronics engineering. However, I run a design agency for more than nine years. I started my events live since 2017 with the Girl Gamer Festival. I had never hosted an event in my entire life. Never would I have thought that I would be an event organizer. So per se, I guess what's exciting is that my realization that events bring together all the different components that I was working previously, like design, marketing, platforms that need to be built to support the tournaments, websites, you know, it brings together all these different roles and it allows me to be more versatile and work a little bit of everything so that I don't get so bored. <laughs> I guess that's the main thing that keeps me going. 
it's always interesting. Yeah, I think that's the reason that so many of us do so many different things is because if we didn't, it'd be boring to have the regular nine to five job. Sometimes people have challenges in deciding what they want to do, right? For me, it's like I see so many things that I would love to do, but I'm still selective. You know, I'm still being selective. I would love to work on home automation things, develop hardware for making smart homes. There's so many interesting things, even from a software perspective, from a game developer's perspective, things that I would love to do, but we cannot just clone ourselves and try to attempt everything. So I'm still being selective, even though I'm trying to accomplish a couple different things. One of the things, like I was saying, is if anyone goes out and looks at your LinkedIn profile, you're doing a lot of different things. That's great. It makes it so much more interesting. You probably work with a lot of entrepreneurs out there. And could you describe what's your definition of an entrepreneur? Let's say that it's someone who has resilience and really sets out to make a change. I think it's a very difficult role. And you know, I was lecturing some guest classes back in university in Macau, and I was asking the students in the entrepreneurship class, why would you want to be an entrepreneur? And many of them would tell me, oh, I don't want to have a boss, or I want to be my own boss, or I want to get rich, you know, all these reasons that they're not the ones that are going to be driving you through the paths that an entrepreneur needs to go through and the challenges to overcome in order to be anything remotely successful. So um, persistence, endurance, resilience are probably the keywords that I would say. You can only have those if you have passion for what you are working on and building, because the challenges are so many along the road that you're not going to overcome them if you're not really passionate about it. Imagine we were organizing events all over the world and then COVID hit and everything got canceled. So this was a huge challenge for us, right? And we survived it and we are continuing it right now. And we probably wouldn't if we were not passionate about it. Yes. You never know what's going to be happening until it happens. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is because I think I saw somewhere you're talking about wanting to work on things that have a lasting impact. Could you describe when you look at an opportunity, you look at some of the things that you're describing out there. What are the hallmarks? What are the keys that say, hey, this is something that could have lasting impact? Anything that relates to the creation of opportunities, in the case of the festival that we host, helping to close or attempting to close the gender gap that exists in the industry, I think will have a lasting impact because what's happening in the video games industry is that games themselves and game studios themselves are still very male predominant, right? So this makes the games have more male-driven narratives, right? That's why the superhero characters of most of the games are still some very big muscular guy. Women are typically still very sexualized in the games industry, you know, with big breasts and all these things. Or maybe they are a reward, you need to save them or something like that. I think that things are starting to shift. Now you see games like Horizon Zero Dawn and so on that have a female strong character as a main character. But this was not the case. It's something that is starting to shift in the very few couple of years. I think something that we want to try is to promote gaming for young girls, because if they get an interest for video games, then they subsequently will be more likely to also be engaged in the game development side of things, right? So the games themselves will also start to be more diverse. And suddenly the narrative is not the muscular, strong guy that beats up everyone. And now it's being influenced by female people who are part of the game development companies. So this is what we see as a long impact, something that we can help to create. One of the things that you can be sure of is that if girls don't play games, they won't be interested in game development. Or absolutely sure. Not just true about girls, true about anyone. If you don't play games, it's not going to be something that interests you. One of the things I'm going to talk about in a little bit more detail is because you brought up different events. Esports entrepreneurs that we talk to kind of fall into two categories in general. It's like either they have a team or they create events. And you have such great experience here on organizing events. You mentioned it maybe a little bit, but if you'd expand on the idea of what all does it take to create an event? That is something that I learned throughout the way, right? As I was saying, I never had any background on events, the organizing. So it was learning the hard way. Thankfully, after I've done with, together with our team more than 14 events across different 14 different countries and five continents, now we can say that, yes, we are experienced in running events. I don't think it's something that 
it's that easy to put on because there's a lot of work. It's something that has to happen, you know, in that exact moment, at that exact minute, something needs to go on. And there's always challenges, always fires to put out, always something that is going wrong that you need to fix. So I would say that people who want to put out events, they got to be extreme problem solvers. And they cannot be people that are focused on why did this problem arise? You know, it doesn't matter the why. Problem is there. It matters what is the solution for it. So very dynamic people who are problem solvers. I think that's the key. That's really key. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on the solution. Exactly. Because if you're in the middle of an event, you have no time to worry about (laughs) where it came from. What's the smallest event you've ever put on? Smallest events. We've done small events. Like before the Girl Gamer, we hosted smaller scale events especially in Macau, because Macau, was I was saying, it's a, such a small place. So we wanted to create some events for the community to develop the community itself, because at that time in 2016, if I'm not mistaken, we joined the International Esports Federation as a representative for Macau region. And one of our goals was to nurture athletes from Macau who would participate in the world championship that the ISF hosts every year. And because Macau is such a small place and the gamers are very hidden and we had to create events that would promote gaming and have them, you know, get out of their houses and come to the event so that we would know who they are and then run tournaments that would qualify the best of them into going to this world championship. So we've done events maybe with uh, in Macau, like 100, 200 people. I would say those are the smaller ones that we've done. I mean, you can also do smaller than that, but I wouldn't say that it's like an event event. It's kind of like like friends gathering or something like that. Yes. So on the other extreme, what's the largest one you put together? Largest one, probably the one that we made in Dubai 2020, right before the pandemic shut down in February. We were lucky to put this event. We had about, I would say around 4,000 people coming over. Our events in Brazil also typically sold out and are very big because the crowd is just so passionate and there's such a big community over there. Those two were probably be our largest so far. What kind of time frame should people be looking at when you're putting on event? A lot of people are like, oh, we want to do an event next week. We want to do an event next month. What's a realistic time frame for especially some of the larger events? Okay, so we're not a good example because we've done very big events with one to two months lead time, which is nothing because you got to prepare the website, you got to prepare the announcement, you got to announce it. People need to register. You need to do an online qualification to select who is actually going to come and compete at the event. There's this whole workflow that takes time. So I wouldn't recommend anyone to try and do in such a short time. I think that at least six months in advance would be a good time frame to try to work on it. We just don't have the luxury for it because we have so many events around the world that we're trying to do. Thankfully, we have very good partners that work with us in the planning and in the execution of those events. But other than that, you definitely need a lot of time, especially because you need to monetize the events, right? So you need to find sponsors and you cannot just go to a sponsor and say, oh, we got an event next week and we kind of need a couple thousand dollars. It doesn't work like that. They need internal approvals. They need, you know, even the bank transfer itself can take like a week, depending on from where to where. It's a process and you need quite some time to do it. Or to do it right. One of the things that when people are putting on an event, where do they get the audience? Because you can put on the best event in the world, but if no one comes to see it, you know, either online or at the venue itself, it's not going to be successful. So what kind of recommendations will you give to people on where to find your audience? Well, I think that before you even think of making an event, you need to know who you're making the event for. In our case, our event is very specific because there's many gaming events happening. But if you look at all of them from an esports perspective, the stage is always full of men or sometimes there's like one woman there. Our event is kind of like the alternative. So basically, I wouldn't say it's such a niche, even though it's a niche, but it's a niche of 50% of the population, right? We know that from a statistical perspective, women are half of the gamers out there. We just don't see from the competitive perspective this happening on the big stages of all those major events. So our event speaks to this audience where we want to create more opportunities. We want to have them on stage, have them serve as role models for a younger generation of girls that can look up and think that they can also become champions. They can also join the industry and be accomplished in that. 
that it's something that is not just for the boys, like all of their events promote. So we know our audience very well, this specific audience that is underserved and doesn't have anything going on for them. So that's what we're focused. But I would say that anyone that thinks about making an event, they kind of need to know who they're making the event for in the first place, not after. And how would they do that? Because I think that's really, really critical that people might think, yeah, we need to know the audience, but maybe that's not a skill that comes naturally. They're gamers. They might be good at creating the game. What's the best way to figure out who your audience is? It depends on the type of events that people want to make, right? It could be for your local community. Maybe there are gaming events happening, but not next to you. And you have a bunch of people who are next to you who would love to join such an event. So you could make an event for your community, your neighborhood, your city, your town. That could be a very specific niche, underserved community that doesn't have anything going on for them. What's the best way to raise money for an event? That could be a complete separate podcast. But one of the things that I think is really, really great in being able to talk to you is that you've done it. You figure out how to finance small ones and big ones. And so how do people find money? Not necessarily, how did you find money? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But in general, it's like, how do people find money to put on a bet? No, we're actually very transparent. And I think that transparency is key for everything that wants to be successful. You know, there's not really much secrets. The thing is that esports events in general are still very sponsorship heavy. So you've got to be able to get brands on board. Now, brands will only be on board if you have a good story to tell if there's relevant benefit for them in being associated with an event. So in our case, it's the mission of women empowerment, the breaking the barriers, the closing of the gender gap. So we've worked with female-oriented brands like Sephora, like Benefit Cosmetics, like Charlotte Tilbury, like L'Occitane, like Johnson & Johnson Carefree Brand. We've done a bit of that. And if you think about those brands, if they wanted to do something in the gaming slash esports space, what else is out there? Basically nothing. So we are the only alternative for those specific brands. Other than that, of course, we have endemic brands in the esports space like Logitech that's been supporting us since 2018. But that's basically the esports events are still very, very heavy sponsorship driven. Of course, you can get some funds like we get funds from tourism offices and sports councils because we bring this group of girls who are actually very well known. Some of them are influencers themselves. And we work with the tourism office to create like a tour, depending on which city we are bringing them to. And we film content and interviews and all of this all around those, the city and landmarks that we're visiting. So it's a way to promote tourism to the region. That's why we also can get some funding from tourism offices. Yeah. Other than that, I think those are the two main points. So government entities, we've done intercool tournaments where the prize for the champions were scholarships. So This is something that could come from the government department, from the educational departments. It just depends on what the event is, who's it focused on, and what's the mission behind it, and then sell it. Yes, yes. It's hard work, but it's something that needs to be done. I really like when you're talking about the prizes being scholarships, because one of the things that I've always tried to do when I was working over here at Warner Brothers in the marketing group, it's like for prizes for things, we can give away trips, we can give away studio tours. We can give away things that no one else can give away that are seen as really, really valuable, but cost absolutely nothing. Scholarship, I mean, they're not completely free. They're not costless, but still, it's not like they have to write a check for them. So if you go to a sponsor and you say, I want to do this, and you're not going to have to write a check for it. Yeah, it's something that's already there and you can take advantage of it. And it has great value for people, but for the sponsor, it's not that much of a spend, right? And we do that, for example, with product sponsorships where we have cosmetic brands, for example, creating customized pack with their products to give to the players, and then players are sharing it all across social media. Those are just creative ways to activate the brands in ways that it doesn't become super costly for them. And there's a great benefit for the players that engage with them. Yes. Be creative is the bottom. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. That's one of the other things for being an event organizer, right? Yes, because if you're not creative, you're not going to get there. One of the things I also wanted to ask you about from an event organizer standpoint is how do you build from one event to the next? Because I think one of the mistakes that maybe people sometimes make is they're thinking of, we're just doing one event. They're not thinking of what can we do after the event to build on the next event? Are there things that you do in your events that kind of build from event to event? We want to do more, to be honest, because... Everything is about community building, right? So if we do an event, 
And then the next event that we're going to do in that specific region is only going to be a year from now. It's very hard for the teams on a specific region to continue, right, to exist because there's maintenance that is required. And then they are thinking, oh, our next competitive opportunity is only like a year from now. Like, who knows? Gamers' careers are not even that long. I think that there's more that we need to do. And we've been trying to do it for a while with having a centralized hub, a portal that will allow competitions to happen throughout the year, at least online, and incentivize local communities to develop their own communities and their own mini events as well. So I think those could be some of the mechanisms that would help build from one event to the next one, considering that we're running events a bit all over. And for us, our next event is going to be in a different region, different country. But thinking back on the people who joined this event in a specific country, they would probably be waiting a year until we're hosting another event there. So we need to create mechanisms that incentivize them to continue being competitive and to keep existing and keep competing until our next event comes back to town. Yeah, it goes back to the lasting impact. One of the things that we always hear over and over and over again, which I always like hearing, is community. If you're doing it right, you're building a community. Absolutely, because we were talking, if you are going to do an event, you need to know who is your event for or who's your community. So you need to build upon it. You need to tackle different things. Maybe for us, it's not just a competitive side. We are starting to include casual gaming. We sometimes include cosplay. So those are all different components that all come together in the same group, let's put it like that, and they build on each other. So it's all about the synergies that can be created between them. Yes. Now, one of the things we keep hearing you talk about over and over again is the Girl Gamer Project, the Girl Gamer Festival. Because you've talked a little bit about why it's necessary to have it. Can you talk about how did it begin? Who was it that sat down and said, hey, let's do this. Let's put on a festival. Sure. So Girl Gamer is an event that was a spin-off coming from our nonprofit organization based in Portugal, Grow Up Esports. So Grow Up is a nonprofit that exists for 21 years. It's focused mostly on education and, inc and social inclusion projects. We're working with the government in Portugal right now in Sintra where we have an arena, we create inter-school tournaments. Sometimes we have seminars for the kids and the parents to learn more about the world of gaming. But basically we promote gaming in a healthy way and use gaming as a tool for social inclusion in general. So Programmer is an event that was born from the association projects. One of them just happened to be an experience that we wanted to run for empowering women because we started to notice that even within our community, there's more guys than girls. Even though now we are diverse because first it was guys, then girls joined their girlfriends, sisters, mothers in some cases, and it became diverse itself. But in many organizations, you still don't see that much of a diversity. We wanted to create this experience that would be an event only for women. And remember, if you think back to 2017, there was kind of nothing going on. There have been some women tournaments before, but they were always promoted as a side event where it was like on a secondary stage or not at prime time, like in the first and early hours of the morning or something like that, when people are not really looking. It's something that never really existed full scale. So we wanted to try and do a whole event dedicated to women empowerment, to create more opportunities in the industry. And actually, every time that we host an event, we also try to have the whole production itself from commentators to the broadcast and all this run by women as well. So this was how the event happened. Now, why does it make sense for us to do this? Well, I always say that inside our team, we are all very big believers that men and women, boys and girls should all play together because there's no physical difference, unlike sports, you know, that would prevent them from performing at the same level. So why have we created such an event? If you look at all these other tournaments that I uh, was talking about earlier, they don't have women competing on stage. They have women in the audience, many of them, right? If you think about events happening in Korea or in China, half of the audience, sometimes even more than half of the audience are women. It's incredible. But on stage, they're not there. So something is wrong with that. And we kind of set out in this mission with the event to try to understand why would that be? There are many reasons to it. I would say that one of the reasons is that there's a lot of online toxicity. And if you are... Playing a game, something that is supposed to be fun, but every time you're playing it, you're getting harassed. You're getting told that that's not your place. You've got to go back to the kitchen. You've got to do this and that. 
it stops being fun. So I think that demotivates a big majority of the girls of pursuing gaming as a career, so per se. And I remember this article that this Chinese girl that won the Hearthstone World Championship. And when she was on the queue to play, she got told by someone that was also there, what is she doing there? That's not for her. And then she ended up winning the world champion title for that game. And this was the comment that she made after she won it, telling her experience. I think that the Girl Gamer Festival is kind of like a stepping stone towards a more inclusive world where boys and girls and everyone can just play together and enjoy. But for now, we do need a separate space to inspire younger generation of girls to join the gaming space, to have a safe space for them without harassment, without being bullied something that they can empower and support each other and grow from there. The whole point is to increase the player base because if you think about the esports professionals, that's like 1% of the total player base. So we need to inspire younger girls to join the competitive landscape so that the numbers themselves will increase. And eventually 1% of those are going to be the ones that we're going to see on the big stages competing. No, that's great. One of the things we hear a lot of is also people like yourself see that there's a need out there. There's something that needs to be done. And rather than waiting for someone else to do it, they jump in and figure out how to do it. Some people are not even waiting for someone else to do it. Some people have the opinion, yes, esports is for everyone and everyone should be playing together. And the tournaments are open for anyone to enroll. So if girls are not joining, it's because they don't want to. And they don't care. And they're not supporters of the segregation of genders. But if this doesn't happen, then nothing is going to change because... Tournaments have been open for both genders or anyone to enroll since forever, but it's not happening. So if it's not happening, either you just lay down your arms and say, well, that's how it is, or you try to do something about it. So just wishful thinking is not going to help change anything. No, that's true about so many things. I want to talk a little bit here about another thing that I saw that you were working on there on the investment side of things. Something I thought was a great name, Mindfulness Capital. It tells you a lot about the approach of people who are involved with that. Can you talk to us a little bit about what Mindfulness Capital does and what you do there? Of course. So I'm more of an advisor for the Mindfulness Capital group. It's actually a group that a friend of mine started, Thomas. And basically, he was a big enthusiast about the crypto space. So he started with Bitcoin back in, I think, 2012 or 2013. Wow, wow. Yeah. And of course, he made a lot of money from it. And he's passionate about the industry itself and the potential for disruption that crypto and Web3 have in general. So he started investing in many different projects. Like you see Mindfulness Capital Portfolio. I invested, for example, seeds on Sandbox and they sold a portion of that to SoftBank. So he's done very well. And he wants to do even more. So I came very recently on board since I think last year, just as an advisor, because I have such an extensive gaming experience. And many of these Web3 games are starting to become play to earn, all these things. So they're starting to tap into the generic gaming markets, gaming industry. So I'm more of an advisor on if I think a game is good, if I think that things are going to progress in a good way for such a project the development has a future and things like that. So that's basically what I'm helping with on the GameFi side of things. Because a lot of these games, by the way, are promoting play-to-earn, but play-to-earn is kind of a concept that is based on a pyramid scheme, right? Because it depends on the liquidity that comes in to feed the rest of the pyramid. But from a traditional gaming industry perspective, we know that games themselves have life cycles. You know, the game that you're going to be playing in three, four years is not going to be the same game from before. So if you are building a play-to-earn structure that has no sustainability and is 100% dependent on the inflow of capital from new players joining, eventually that flow of new players is going to dry up. So what I do is I try to do this kind of analysis and give my best recommendations from an investment perspective to games and GameFi projects that are looking for funding with us. What are the kinds of things that investors look for in games as far as, I mean, they're obviously looking for a return, but how do they look at them? I think it's more about the founders of such projects and not necessarily the project itself that they're building because if you have founders that have given proof of their abilities of being good technical teams, being able to put out a product successfully, and this is not the first thing that they're attempting to do, 
they're more likely to be successful because there's this old saying that a good team can fix a bad project. But if you have a good project, but a bad team, even if the project is good, it's not going to be able to go forward. So I think that investors are mostly looking for accomplished founders to support their projects and not necessarily the project itself. The project can definitely be very, very good. And of course, having a good project and a good team is the ideal. But if you need to choose one, then founders first and project second. Yes, we've heard that a few times as well. So it makes sense. I want to talk a little bit here about culture. Think of the different cultures that you've been immersed in over your lifetime. I mean, you are all over the place in Europe, in Asia, now in the Middle East, Dubai, and it's things like that. Can you talk a little bit about how organizations can successfully work across cultures and not just language, but about cultures? (laughs) Well, organizations are made of people, right? So you need open-minded people. You need people that are accepting of other strange things, things that could be perceived as strange. And if all the individuals in an organization have such an open-minded acceptance to difference, then the organization itself is going to be open and more easy to doing things across cultures. Because yes, things are very different. Like doing business in China is completely different from doing business in the Middle East. And for sure, it's completely different of doing business here in North America in general. I think that having an international experience is definitely very important, like traveling, especially traveling and seeing different things with eyes of acceptance not seeing different things and being like, oh, wow, that's weird. I would never do this or that. And it's very important to be open to the differences and to explore why are things. I think the diverse world is so beautiful. Humanity spread across all corners of the world and doing the same things, but in a different way. That's just beautiful to see. But, you know, some people are still too hard, too locked in a specific mindset that they see something different and they think, oh, wow, this is insane or something. Yes, it's insane, but it's good that it's insane. No, and I think one of the things is that games can really bridge cultures because if you're playing League of Legends, it doesn't make any difference what language you're speaking or what part of the world you're in. You're playing the same League of Legends game that everyone else is. Even within the games, and League of Legends is a great example, Koreans play the game in a totally different way than the Western world. For example, in our last World Finals, our event in Bahrain back in March, the girls from G2 ended up losing to the Korean team And they were so surprised, like, wow, they would never expect because they are tier one, top one team right now across Europe and probably US. So they got beaten by the Koreans. And I think it was like a 3-0 kind of thing. And they got mind blown by the way that Koreans play because the strategy, the way that they engage in the game, even though it's the same game, it's different the way that they played. So they managed to beat them like crazily. It's very good, right? Because you get to engage with them. You get to have this chance. And if you want to get better, you need to compete with someone who's better than you. So that's the key. Definitely. What's going on in Dubai these days? Because in the Middle East, there's so much attention and so much money being focused on gaming, on esports. What's your take on what's happening there? A lot is happening in Dubai and in the Middle East. Maybe more is happening in the Middle East than in Dubai. <laughs> Dubai is quite some things happening. Actually, when we did our first events in February 2020, the Girl Gamer, it was the biggest first ever festival for esports, big one in the region. Since then, we've seen blasts organized there. We've seen Dubai government creating the Dubai Esports Festival, which actually the second edition just happened last month. I was speaking there in the conference as well. I think that they realized that gaming is such a big thing. Like most of the people are actually gamers in the region. Why? Because in the Middle East, half of the year, it's very hot. So people are just indoors. And what are they doing indoors? They're probably playing games, right? It's the way to be connected with friends. So I think that Dubai has finally realized this. So there's a big, big push for this Dubai Sports Festival. If you look at the introduction trailer for this Dubai Festival, it's crazy because they did this whole gaming-themed trailer with the backdrop of Dubai landmarks, the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, some gamers surfing by all around and getting absorbed by a portal, going in the middle of the desert. You know, there's so many interesting things that they've done to promote gaming. And you don't really see it that deep happening in the more civilized and more supposedly more advanced world in gaming. Because, you know, for Europe and North America, gaming has been all around forever. But you don't see this type of push. Now, they are pushing very, very strongly, and especially Saudi, right? Saudi Arabia committed 
crazy, crazy amounts of funding for gaming in general. Actually, my colleagues were just there now at the Gamers 8 initiative, which is a week or month long. It's a month long esports event that is kind of like a mini city of itself and has a 43 million US dollars prize pool across the different competitions that is happening there. That's complete insanity. You know, the biggest prize pool was the international for Dota 2. And that's like more than bubble of that. And this is government funded. It's not like private entity. It's not a publisher. It's not crowdfunded. No, the government realizes the importance of gaming throughout the young generation, and they are willing to invest in it. Why are they doing that? One of the things I think is interesting, because you're saying that they recognize that it's important to young people. And, and the other thing I want to ask also about is the difference between Dubai and other parts of the Middle East, because a lot of times we just lump it all together. It's the Middle East. It's Saudi Arabia and southern places attached to it. Can you describe first a little bit of the difference between what's happening in Dubai and maybe what is happening in the other areas? What's the distinction there that you think of? Sure. The Middle East is typically, actually, even for me, I'm not going to blame everyone because even for me, it was. It's kind of seen as a whole bubble that is all the same altogether. Before I traveled there that much, I also kind of had that impression because I was just ignorant. I didn't understand so much about the region, the different countries, different costumes. Now that I'm living there, now that we've done an event in Bahrain, which is such a vibrant community, now that I've been to Saudi Arabia as well, I'm starting to realize the differences that exist and how each of them is unique and building their own thing. I think that gaming in general is very, very big across the region and it's been recognized as such. I was just describing the importance towards the younger generation because the younger generation is going to be the future. Things are starting to change. It's really good to see that the governments in Dubai and in the United Arab Emirates in general, not just in Dubai, right? And also in Bahrain have recognized esports, you know, as something that is very important for the younger generation. And Saudi Arabia is following suit. And I think that when I first met Prince Faisal, who leads the Saudi Arabian Sports Federation, I met him when he was still building the federation itself. The federation didn't exist. And I was so impressed for the plans that he had in mind to put together. I never thought that he would make it so fast. But of course, if you have unlimited funding, you kind of are able to do things much, much faster. But it's just impressive. Saudi now has state-of-art facilities, state-of-art production. They have the best of the best. They acquired ESL, they acquired DreamHack, they acquired FaceIt. They have everything in terms of top-notch quality for production and for events organizing and everything. They have it. And they are bringing like everything to happen over there in the Gamers 8 initiative. What's really interesting is the way that you described it as before you moved there, it was all kind of one place. After spending some time there, you were seeing the differences. Also, one of the things I wanted to comment on, it helps when you have a lot of money. But just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're going to get where you want to go. But it sounds like you were impressed with the roadmap that they've laid out. True indeed. I wanted to add that there's a big misconception of what's happening in the region. Every time I talk to someone outside, especially in the Americas in general, that I'm living in Dubai, people are like, oh, you know, how is it for women? Can they walk outside? Can they wear normal clothes and stuff like that? Dubai is so progressive. The things that are happening in the UAE in general, it's like Miami, to be honest. There's an etiquette to follow, like being respectful to the culture itself. There are some unwritten rules or written slash unwritten rules, right? It's all about respect. But other than that, it's an open country. Like everything can happen. In Bahrain, for example, which is another super, super open country, we had two commentators, really nice girls coming from the U.S. to cast our games. And one of them was asking, how is it? I've never been to Bahrain. What kind of clothes do we have to take with us? Is it safe? Are there terrorist attacks and things like that? One of the funny answers, funny, but not so funny, to be honest. One of the answers that I gave her was like, you're living in the States and you're asking about security in the Middle East. In the States, there can be a mass shooting any day of the week. Or like from a statistical perspective, there has been more mass shootings this year than number of dates. It's ridiculous. And in the Middle East, this simply doesn't happen because people don't have access to this weapon. In the UAE, it's forbidden to carry a knife if you go in public places. In Europe, as long as your blade is like less than three fingers, you can carry a blade because it's not considered a weapon. In the Middle East, you cannot take a knife. It's a little bit scary that you know that statistic. 
of course, I know. Because I have one in my car, because I use it for cutting the seatbelt, whatever emergency situations, you always need such a tool to be handy. But from a utility perspective, that's why you need to know how many fingers of blade you can have. Otherwise, you have an illegal weapon. In Dubai, this doesn't fly. You cannot have any sort of weapon. Of course, you hear of some things happening in Dubai sometimes, but almost nothing like compared to anywhere else. It's one of the very few places in the world where I'm comfortable sitting in a restaurant, leaving my bag, my laptop, my phone in the table, getting up, going to the washroom and coming back. And I'm absolutely sure that nobody touched my things ever. I can do this in Dubai. I can do this in Japan, even in Macau, which is a very safe place. I'm not sure if I would do it just because of the inflow of people from mainland China that are coming. But other than that, to be honest, it's super crazy safe. One of the things I like to do is talk to people that are there. There's certainly incredible misperceptions from all kinds of different ways. The last thing I want to ask about here, because I don't want to take your whole day here, is something I saw that was really, really interesting to me was the Portugal-China Young Entrepreneurs Association. Okay. I heard you talk about earlier about looking at opportunities for government to finance things. But what I really was interested in hearing about this is what exactly do they do? What is it that they're up to? Okay. So basically, it's an association based in Portugal. It's a commercial trade association. But the main objective of it is to create a bridge between Portugal and actually not just Portugal. I would say Portuguese-speaking countries in general to do business with China, but using Macau as a front door, right? Because Macau, as I was saying, used to be a Portuguese colony. There's still Portuguese as an official language. And it's one of the smartest ways, I would say, to enter the Chinese market. So basically, this association gathers food producers like oil, specific products that are very, very high quality from Portugal. And they participate in trade fairs that happen both in China and in Macau. And they create these initiatives of business matchmaking between Chinese entities that are interested in commercializing Portuguese high-quality products and these Portuguese companies that want to export to a market as huge as China. We've witnessed deals that are insane because, for example, in China, if you manage to have a deal with your olive oil to sell it there, you don't have the production capacity. You got to gather all your neighbors, everyone that you know in the whole region where your winery or whatever it is that you're selling is located. And you got to band together and try to produce enough just for one supermarket in a big city. It's like the amount of tons that it's consumed because there is just so many people there. It's crazy. So breaking deals like that is what the association helps do. Do they work on any esports or gaming deals? Not really. It's a totally different thing. One of the things I always encourage people to do is to investigate because you never know when there are organizations. This isn't an exact fit for gaming, but be out there on the lookout for organizations that are and be creative in going out and searching them out there. Absolutely. Because one of the things we've talked about here before is that American embassies around the world give away grants or cultural exchanges. And we're always like, there's nothing more American than video games. You can claim a lot of video games are made here to spread them around the world. I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time here. We'll wrap up. So where can people learn more about you? What is it you're up to? Well, actually, I'm launching a new startup that we didn't talk about, which is Extended. Let's hear about it. Okay, sure. It's a startup in the metaverse space. I've been a very big metaverse advocate since the very beginning. Like I actually dropped out of university to start my first metaverse company back in 2008 together with some friends. What? Yeah. 2008? Yes. So at that time, we were already building the blueprint of what this new company is about. So it's about digital twins. This means that we are recreating real-life cities and real-life locations, highly, highly detailed state-of-art graphics, like it's possible in video games. And we are recreating them as online worlds for virtual tourism experiences, for virtual life events for virtual brand experiences and marketing campaigns. So we're kind of creating like the game of real life, so per se. That's great. I'm going to be going to Italy here soon. And I've been going through all the Assassin's Creed games. Okay. In Florence, in Venice, in Rome. In Florence. Yes, I did exactly the same. And it's super cool because you get there. And because you've played the game, 
suddenly you know. You know where's the Ponte Vecchia, which is the old bridge where in the Assassin's Creed series, the brothers were in the Ezio sequence, there were the brothers were there. You know, look at those towers, those chapels, and you know exactly because you are climbing them in the game. So that's the super, super cool thing. And it's kind of something like from that is our angle as well, right? Because if you create something that is an experience online and people are going through that experience and imagine that it's a real life location, people are actually more likely to want to visit it in person rather than know that consider that it's been visited. No, actually, if you see it, you want to visit it. And I had this exact experience in Italy because I played Assassin's Creed, almost all of them. And I really wanted to see, you know, all the places. Because I just went back through all the NTO games because I'm going to be in Florence. I'm going to be in Venice. I'm going to be in Rome. And then I'm also going to be in Istanbul. Oh, I'm going to hit all the places that he hit. And it's just like, wow, this would be great. So your organization, what cities are you or what locations are you recreating? Right now, we are working in Dubai and Portugal, Lisbon. But we want to create one more and then we'll launch it publicly as a beta slash demo. Then we'll go from there. Yeah. That's a really good idea because I think that will bring people on board that don't really understand what it is that the metaverse can do, which like me included. You know, the problem with the metaverse is that there was too much of false promise. I mean, a lot of companies raised a lot of money and they didn't manage to deliver anything. And even if you look at Facebook, a huge company, right? They spent so much money and the output that came out of there is not good enough then people are criticizing so actually there's already a negative connotation associated with the word metaverse now just because of so much hype so much false promise and basically deception so i think that it's not that the metaverse it's not something with potential to really disrupt things like travel and so on but i think it's just the fact that no platform has actually delivered a good experience for users so People are just not into it because many of the platforms are actually like Minecraft. For example, you think about Sandbox is kind of like Minecraft, but with crypto. It's not that it's bad. It has its own audience, but it doesn't appeal to the mass audience. And the other thing that I find, and I think that you're addressing is just to understand what it is. It's same with crypto. There's so many people that don't understand crypto. It hasn't been explained to them in a way that they can glom onto for whatever reason. But I think one of the things with what you're doing there, to me, it makes a lot of sense because all of a sudden, if I see that, okay, this is like being able to visit a real life place through the metaverse, it's like, okay, now I can kind of understand what it is that it does. Where before it's like, ah, oh, man, this, it's all in the air, right? Just dreams. <laughs> yeah. Hard to explain. And the other thing is, I think you're also a larger mass audience out there. Because if people don't understand it, it's about utility as well. You need to create something that has interest and has utility for people to be able to use it. If you're not providing any specific value or you're just expecting people to use some platform and communicate, like do meetings through avatars or something like that, I think that's not the right utility. But Fortnite, for example, is doing amazing with their concerts and with their other things. I mean, it's not a proper metaverse because you cannot even communicate. You can only like do emotes and dances and stuff. But whenever they host like music concert or some very specific events, it's crazy. There's hundreds of millions of users wanting to experience that. Roblox, for example, is also a very big success case where they are allowing people to use their engine to build mini experiences. Of course, it's still a game and of course, it's still for young kids. But still, it's super crazy populated. It's not something that we would say, oh, this is dying. The metaverse is dying. There's millions and millions of users, like hundreds of millions of users. So it's just about having a good product with a good experience and giving utility to the users. So when are you going to launch? We don't know yet. We're still in development. So I'm not rushing anything. And I think it's not good to rush, especially in the stage that we are right now, where people are kind of thinking that the metaverse might be dead and things like that. So. It's good to do proper development and whenever it's ready, it's ready. I think that's the key to not be pressured to launch because we've seen a lot of games, especially pressured to launch because of commercial reasons, development reasons, costs and whatsoever, like Cyberpunk, for example, which was an amazing game, but it launched full of bugs and things. And that's the point in doing that. So if you don't need to do it, don't do it. Just develop until you have a good thing and launch it when it's ready. I have yet to get through Cyberpunk. Just lost interest there. 
because of the bugs, right? That it launched with. I think it was the Bethesda game. Was it Redfall? Redfall that just came out. I didn't follow. That is like, man, it just got obliterated with. Because they rushed it out. And it's just not. And the problem is that people, for example, like you try the game, it's buggy, it's whatever, you don't want it. Or you re even read the experiences of people trying it and having so many issues, you're done. And then it's out of your mind and then another one coming. So getting the first impression right is very important. Yes. Fernando, thanks again for your time here. Really appreciate you talking about events, talking about, I want to make sure I say it right. It's Girl Gamer. Girl Gamer Esports Festival. Girl Gamer Festival. And some of the other things that you've been up to. And it's also always good to hear someone on the ground in Dubai, what it's like to be there, because we don't always get that chance. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. This is the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.